Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Reverend Dr. Tony Lynn talks to journalist Edgar Sandoval about covering Texas for the New York Times and the nuances of the U.S. Latino experience. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast by the Hispanic Theological Initiative at Princeton Theological Seminary. My name is Tony Lin. I'm a sociologist and a Presbyterian clergy, and I'm the author of Prosperity Gospel Latinos and Their American Dream. Today, I'm with Edgar Sandoval, who is a reporter with the New York Times, where he writes about South Texas and its people and, and the places. Previously, he was a newspaper reporter in Los Angeles, Pennsylvania, and Florida. He is the author of The New Face of Small Town America with Penn State Press, which was published in 2010. Edgar, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Edgar, tell us a little bit about, about yourself and, and your background and maybe how, how you became a, a journalist. Oh, thank you for that question. Um, so I, I have what I could like to call the reverse immigration story. Um, I was born in Los, in Los Angeles. I was born there, um, went to grade school in Inglewood till, till the third grade. Um, and then my parents decided to move to Mexico. Um, their dream was to open their own welding shop in a small town uh, in Zacatecas. So when I was in third grade, we went to, we moved to Mexico, me, my four siblings and my parents. Um, so I came of age there, you know, I was, I was in this small town from the third grade to high school. And by that point, it was the, the late 1980s, the economy in Mexico was faltering, especially in my hometown, which in my hometown, uh, Zacatecas, uh, people rely on, on money people send from the U.S. Um, so when the economy was bad, our shop wasn't doing a lot of business. My parents decided, you know, we have five American-born citizens. Um, we want, if we want them to have a better future, why not go back to the U.S.? Um, so we moved back. We were all in high school, most, most of us. And we went to Texas this time, not California. It's a little bit cheaper, and we have some family there. Um, so I ended up in, in um, first in Galveston, Texas, which is near Houston. Um, I'm sorry, that's not right. Texas City, which is near Galveston, and then Galveston. And then we ended up in the border with Mexico, where I finished high school and I went to, to college. And, and I was always interested um, in seeing people like me in the media, uh, newspapers. I always like reading. Um, and even though in immigration is a very important topic, I also wanted to see Latinos reflected in different kinds of stories, you know, not just immigration, even though it's part of my own personal story. Um, so that I just became interested in journalism, um, decided to study it in college. Um, I went to the University of Texas Pan American, which uh, now is called UTRGV for, for Rio Grande Valley. Mm. And I got my first start in newspapering when I was in college still working for the, for the Monitor, which is the local paper in McAllen, Texas. And I was writing obituaries on the weekends. Uh, I was working two other jobs. I was working, I was tutoring kids in high school when I was in college. And I was working at a Kmart uh, supermarket store, not supermarket, but a, a big chain store, big box store. Uh, so I was doing that, going to college, and then I started just liking the newspaper business. Um, and shortly after that, in the next following year, uh, the monitor started giving me more assignments to go out in the field and cover stories. And I just took it from there. You know, I went to work, like you mentioned, in LA, 
Texas, Pennsylvania. I spent uh, more than a decade in New York working for the New York Daily News. Hmm. It's a very greedy newspaper, G-R-T-T-Y, very street savvy. Uh, so you really learn how to maneuver tough situations and deadlines. Um, so I had a long career with them. And then in 2018, um, like most of the media industry, they were struggling with revenues and they laid off half the newsroom. And I was part of that layoff group, um, which was very devastating at the time. You know, it was, it was like being married to someone for 10 years and then suddenly getting the divorce papers out of the blue. Um, but then I started freelancing for the New York Times uh, here in, in, in New York. Um, and slowly um, I just climbed the ladder there. You know, I spent one year or so freelancing and what they call stringing. That's when they call you to cover breaking news. Mm-hmm. I was doing also writing my own stories as well. And then they gave me a contract. It's almost like a full-time employee, but contract. Um, and then from there, they hired me um, as, a, as a staff reporter. Wow, that's great! And so now, now you're, you're are you back home now? Is that your your home base where you you grew up? Yeah. So um, so I'm in based in San Antonio, okay. Uh, which is you know Texas is a huge state, and you drive three hours just to go to the market sometimes. But my family is four hours south in McAllen, and I'm in San Antonio. So yeah, we're in a relatively big area considering Texas is such a huge state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so tell us tell us what's going on at the border. What what uh, there's been there's been a lot, and we can, we can go into the, the detail of some of the 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 more focused uh, reporting that you you've done. But but what are some things that we need to be paying attention to right now? Right now it's we're in early March 2023. What are some things that are happening there that 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 we might not know in the the national news? Right now, um, is is quote unquote quiet, as they say. Um, you know, as you know, back in December, there was what a lot of people consider a humanitarian crisis, because there were uh, thousands of migrants stranded on the Mexican side of the border, um, and very few were allowed to to cross and um, apply for asylum, uh, and and very few qualified for asylum. It was just people who were escaping communist countries uh, mainly. So on the Mexican side, it was really just chaos. And even on the U.S. side in El Paso, where I spent some time, uh, there were a lot of people on the streets. There are not enough resources to care for them. You know, there's no bathroom facilities. A lot of people are coming with children. So, I mean, it was um, people in the town were having a hard time just, you know. People in El Paso were really conflicted because, you know, it is the Ellis Island of Texas where, you know, welcoming city is a majority Latino city. But they also realized that they don't have the resources to to care for so many people. So it was kind of like um, uh, not bittersweet, but it was a internal struggle they were trying to to understand. Yeah, you feel you you want people to to seek a better future, but if there's you know if they come to the U.S. Um, and then they're living on the streets with their children, then that's not any any human should be treated no, regardless of their uh, documentation status. Sure. But that has changed uh, since Biden really enacted stricter immigration policies. Um, basically, now, if you apply for asylum at the border, you automatically are disqualified. And I think people, um, migrants are getting that message and they're not coming in bigger numbers. So now it's it's pretty quiet. Um, but, but, you know, every summer we see um, a surge of people, a big number of people 
um, trying their, their chances. So I think in May, we will see um, more more activity on the border. So what are those people doing if if they are already there? Are they just staying in Mexico or are they are they having to return to their home country? Yeah, a lot of people that I spoke with, you know, they they sold their homes, they they cash their savings account, they spend a lot of money paying uh, smugglers to get them to to the border, so they have nothing to go back to, you know. Um, so they they a lot of them when I spoke to them, they say they were willing to stay as long as it took. But also the shelters in Mexico also don't have limited limitless resources, especially when there's more people arriving every day. So they do have a, a time period they have to eventually move on. Um, so some people did end up ended up going back, you know, because they they had nothing else to do, um, nothing else to look forward to. There was no chance for them to get asylum, really. And the shelters in Mexico also were were getting pretty overcrowded. So some of them went back defeated, you know, and, and sad that they couldn't achieve their dream. Wow. Where, where does that stand with the Biden administration with that policy? I mean, that that can't stand long term. I mean, it's definitely being challenged. Um, but I think the Biden administration is also is also desperate. They nobody has really figured out how to how to um how to enact you know humane immigration policies. Uh, and it looks like in Washington, it's a gridlock, right? So the Republicans and the Democrats are both um, not willing to work together, it seems like. So until that happens, until they get their heads together and come out with a real solution, and this is going to be um, um, the story of America. You know, and when I go to the border, which is often, people always tell me this is a story that's it's always been happening here, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, people remember the same concepts in the 80s, 90s. Yeah. So, long-time border resident, this is just part of life. Yeah, yeah. So, in hearing you talk, I, I'm I'm assuming when you first went to the border, eight, 2018, 2019, it was mostly, you were thinking you were going to focus mostly on immigration issues. Is that right? Yeah, so um, when I was sent to uh, to San Antonio, it was to, to a big part of it was going to be immigration, but also to write about Latinos in America uh, in that part of the country. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't just we, we were trying to go beyond Latinos are immigrants. You know, Latinos are mixed of Americans now, um, especially in Texas. In Texas, you have three, four, fifth generation of Latinos Americans. You know, who have last names like Hernandez and Rodriguez, but really have no memory of their homeland. And yeah. some people haven't come back to to Mexico and in America in a long time. So, like, for example, Uvalde, a lot of the people in that community are, are generational Mexican Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, yeah, and they they were a lot of them were there before. There was it was part of America, right? Right. You know, the common rephrase, as you probably heard, it's the border crossed us. Um, so, San Latinos never were, you know, it was Mex when it was, they were in Mexico only when it was Mexico. Yeah. Um, and ever since Texas became part of the U.S., uh, you know, they've been there, you know. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a community where it's very multicultural, you know, the Mexican community, the Mexican culture, the American culture are very intertwined. Mm -hmm. um, you can play George Strait and, and, in your iPad, and then you go to to Pepe Aguilar in the next song. You know, um, that's just part of the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned Uvalde, and also also immigration and generations of uh, of Latinos. When uh, when the Uvalde the the school shooting took place, one of the things that that um, 
that was painfully, painfully clear is that we don't, as, uh, as immigrants, we don't get to choose how we assimilate mm -hmm. into a larger culture. And uh, most stories of assimilation, if that even happens, it's, it, we, it's always painted in a positive light, but we also assimilate in, in ways that, uh, that are not as, uh, as helpful and not uh, even in some ways destructive. Right there, there was a period of time when mass shooting was almost an exclusively wild, you know, white white male issue. You've uh, sadly had to cover mass shootings in Uvalde, but then recently you had to go to to California, right? So not just Latinos, but but Asians, right? Asian Asian Americans. Who, who have also assimilated into this culture of, of gun and mass shootings of, of this country. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thought as, as somebody who, who was on the, literally on, on the, in the front of those, right? All of us listening to this podcast, we, we read and our hearts were broken, but, but we weren't on the ground with those, those people. Tell, tell us, yeah, what, what was it like in those first, first few days and even hours of, of the shooting. In, in yeah, Iraq. I mean, yeah, it was heartbreaking from the first moment. Um, but you're right. I mean, uh, the mass shooting profile had always been almost exclusively a young white male. Um, and in the last few months, I would say even years, um, that profile has changed, you know. Um, mm -hmm. We have people of color perpetrating this this horrible crime on their own community, you know, and in Hapun Bay. Um, in Monterey Park and in Uvalde, that was the common refrain I heard from, not from the families, but from the activists, you know, that it was quote unquote one of our own, um, a young Latino man who, it's a small town, 50,000 people, so people knew of his family. He was a pretty reclusive individual, but people knew of the, of the family, you know, mm -hmm. and he worked at a local Wendy's. So, I mean, he wasn't, he was not a complete stranger. Um, so it was really unfortunate um, that one of, you know, a federal Latino committed, I mean, whoever committed this crime would have been a horrible idea, but the fact that it was your neighbor, you know. But I think that the, a lot of the people in Uvalde go beyond the actual gunman. I mean, it was a systematic failure. Everything that could go wrong went wrong at every level, you know, from the initial police response. If you know the story of what happened in Uvalde, um, this, this young person, first attacked his grandmother uh, with a weapon and, and the police were called in those moments initially um, and then he was pursued so the police were were on his tail from the beginning really you know he arrives um outside the school um has a confrontation with some officers shoots at some local residents and still manages to get in and then is their friend 77 minutes right so mm -hmm. it's not a, in, in the other mass shootings usually people find out what happened after after the crime has been perpetrated um mm -hmm. but in this case it was a systematic failure at, at all levels you know mm -hmm. and then even after the tragedy happened um there was uh, a lot of uh, silence from the from the authorities or, or misinformation um being spread out and to this day the families don't feel like they have gotten the answers that they need, you know? Mm -hmm. They want not just, you know, accountability, but they also want some changes. And they face a lot of resistance, not just from the authorities, but also a lot of their neighbors now. Because uh, Uvalde is, is a conservative town, you know, speaking of assimilation, Latinos have assimilated to, to rural um, 
mentality where Republicans are the majority in those areas. Um, and, and with that ideology comes the idea that there should be no restrictions on any kind of guns, no weapons, you know? And the Uvalde families and their allies really want some gun control change. They What they're looking for specifically is they would like to see all AR-15s banned completely. They don't see why a weapon that is made for the war, you know, for soldiers, people have to be trained to to use them, why they should be sold in a regular supermarket next to next to a Hampton Inn and next to a gas station, you know, which is where the store uh, is located where this person bought um, the weapon. Um, but they, yeah, they so they want accountability and they want uh, those changes, but unfortunately, they're not getting um, that reception. They're actually being blocked at every turn, but they're really resilient group of people. And this is going to be the, the the mission of their lives going forward. Yeah. yeah. But it was, yeah, but it was devastating. I mean, um, I remember when, you know, when these stories happen, you have, you get an, an alert on your phone, right? And for the mo most of the time, you know, you, you, your heart kind of races and then you think, you know, maybe it's not what we think it is. A lot of times people report, you know, false information on Twitter and social media and, and even an alert. So a lot of times the reports come in as a mass shooter and it turns out that it was something else or just a one-on-one -on -one personal situation where people were running, you know? Mm -hmm. So when Uvalde, the Uvalde alert came, um, at first we thought it was a person who was being chased by police and ended up in a, in a school trying to get away. Mm -hmm. And then an hour went by and then we just thought, okay, well, this is one of those false alarms, you know, nothing, nothing really, you know, hopefully happened. Um, and then like a few hours later, I get the, another text from my editor saying, is this is happy, this is real. And I just remember like my heart fell and I was in the valley in the border covering a story about um, how people were crossing to Mexico to buy baby powder milk because at the time there was a shortage in the US. Mm -hmm. So in the, one of the benefits of living in the border is that people can cross to Mexico as they do regularly to buy supplies. So they were able to do that. But I had to drop that story um, and drive to Uvalde. Um, and from there, from there on, I spent like the first first month or so just kind of like living there. Um, and at first, at first, the families, um, as you probably would understand, they're reluctant. The world's media descends in this little town, you know, mm -hmm. and everyone is trying to talk to to the family members and their neighbors. So it's a little overwhelming. Not only are they going through the worst day of their lives, you know, the worst tragedy they can imagine, but also, and you have misinformation from the police, and and you know, and there's like an obvious lack of police response. And on top of that, you have all these reporters from the world, you know, banging on your door. So it was overwhelming. Um, but I think over time, I've gotten to know a little bit some of the families, not not all of them. Um, we got a photographer who's been there also from the beginning. Mm. His name is Amir Khalifa. And he has been there more than anyone that I know in the media. He's basically sleeping there. And he's gotten to know that the family is a lot better. Um, he's had really intimate photos that we hope to publish. We, we published some of them already. So if your artist wants to go see some of his photography, um, just Google my name or Google his name, Tamir Khalifa. And you can just see really poignant imagery um, from, from the family members. But it's, it is the most heartbreaking story I've, I've covered. And I've been doing this. Um, for 20 years. So yes, yeah, so I was at a panel in New York, at the New York Times for, you know, for internal uh, staff members. Um, and I was talking about uh, one of my very first features that I wrote, uh, more of an in-depth story about some of the families in Ubaldi. 
And um, I wrote about uh, two pair of siblings, a boy and a girl. They were in the same grade, um, different classrooms, but um, they went to school. They would ride the bus to school together every morning because they live in the same house. They're siblings. Um, they're, they were half sister and brother, but they were um, they grew up together because they were like two because their parents uh, married. Um, you know, so they go to the school, they get into school, they go to the, they go to the, the classrooms. And then at 1130, the gunman gets into the school and, and one of them doesn't survive and one of them gets away. And the little girl is photographed. Um, this photo went viral everywhere, but she's running across the lawn, um, just terrified as kids are jumping out the window, you know, in the aftermath of the shooting. So when I was talking about this, um, you know, answering your question about how hard it is to cover this kind of stories, I just kind of broke down on the panel for some reason, you know, I um, I didn't see it coming. I don't know how it came over me, but I guess it was the lights. It was, uh, you know, it was like kind of a high production um, at the times, um, overwhelmed by everything and the emotion. And I was thinking a lot about this story because I wanted to, to talk about it. So, and I've, I have been in Ubaldi uh, recently. Um, I, I was in Ubaldi, few I, I drove from Ubaldi to the airport in San Antonio to get to New York. So it was fresh on my mind. Um, yeah, so I just I just kind of like fell apart a little bit there and I was kind of embarrassed, but anybody was quite reassuring that it's it's part of um, part of being a, a person. And I broke down because I was going to say that the kids remind me of my nephews and the parents of my cousins, you know, and my siblings. Um, and that's and before I got to that part, I just kind of choked up a little bit and and had to have someone else come to the rescue in the panel and, and take over uh, answering a question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think when even for those of us just reading this, right, there's always that that moment, right, that when when this happens, we just live with that lump on our throat for for the for the next few days as things more news comes. And then there's something, something that breaks us. And yeah, the whole everything comes out. If your audience wants to look at that article, um, they can just Google my name um, and, and the name of the little boy who passed away because their families do want us to remember their names. That's what they that's what they're asking for. Like don't forget their names. Um, and it's become really important for 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 the New York Times and a lot of media outlets to to for the people to remember the victims and not the gunmen. Because usually early on the gunmen will be become the spotlight and, and the person that everybody focuses on. But that's changed. Uh, I mean I think I don't think you, if I ask you who was the gunman in, in Monterey Park, you probably don't remember, right? Mm -hmm. Or even Half Moon Bay. Um, but in the old, if I ask you who was the shooter in Sandy Hook, you probably do know, you know. So I think we made a conscious decision at the New York Times uh, to only name him when it is necessary. You know, that would be like a, a court document. Mm -hmm. uh, his mother was arrested recently for for threatening someone in Oklahoma, so I had to write about that story, and I had to mention him because. That was the part of the story, but for the most part, um, we try not to mention him. So if your audience wants to look up this article, um, the name of the boy is Jose Flores. They also call him Josecito or baby Jose, and his sister is Andrea. And it's just um, it's just a very compelling um, story about two siblings with different fates, you know? And, and this is the story of America, sadly. Uh, as I don't know if you know this, but you know, the number one cause of death for children is not car accidents, it's not cancer, it's guns, yeah. gun wounds. So so sadly, these kids are, you know, they're, they were, they feel victims of this American tragedy. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's when when uh, when my friends from other countries talk about how terrible things are, because there are plenty of things that are wrong in in our in other países in America Latina. Okay. There are plenty of places that are that that are problems. But I tell them, your your number one reason for death for your children are is not guns, right? right. And however bad things are, corruption and what whatever whatever it is economy you you don't have mass shootings right and you don't send your kids to school or worry right that there might be a mass shooting like i do you know i do every day my kids go that thing is that this is preventable right like in some countries you know uh, diseases are, are a little bit more difficult to to tackle for many reasons but guns in schools especially it's something that it's just you know if, if you put a little bit more thought into it, I'm sure they can come up with a solution. You know, it's not, you know, the people who, who are pro-gun rights, um, they always argue that even if you enact laws, you're not going to stop, you know, gun gun violence. But, but you know, what, what the activists say, on the other hand, is that if you step one, you know, you step one, if you um, if you make it more difficult for people who are not, should not be owning guns to get those guns, that's the whole point. I mean, there's laws against murder, right? Murder still happens. There are laws against drunk driving. People still, unfortunately, get behind the wheel, you know? So the laws are just meant to to raise awareness and, and and you know, lower that, yeah. that incident. Yeah, that yeah and it's almost like we can't, we, it's, it's all or nothing for, for both sides, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, Sure, banning guns is not going to end the, the fact that some the fact that it even crosses people's mind that they're going to go into a school and shoot little kids. That's that's there's something rotten in a society that raises people for that to be normal. So okay, fine, right? E even if you ban guns, that how how do you you know how do you fix that that culture? But also the fact is, if you ban guns, the access will be lower and. You know everything we know, right? All the research we know shows, if you have stricter gun control, if you have background checks, if you have these things, it, it would decline, right? So a lot of the gunmen who who have committed these terrible acts in the in the most recent mass shootings, most of them got their guns legally, yeah. And that means that they follow the law. Mm -hmm. uh, so if the laws were a little bit stricter, perhaps they would have had a more difficult time getting to those weapons. Yeah. A lot of the people in you in Uvalde who support gun control, a lot of them own guns, right? So it's not like um it's not like it's, it's a foreign concept to them. They just want people who should not be getting guns who are who obviously show signs of violence or disturbance um not to get those guns, especially when you're a young person who who probably has fantasies or God knows what's going on in your brain. You just need some someone to access you, you know. Sure. So they, so a lot of people there have guns. They just want responsible people to get those kind of weapons. Well, actually, they don't want those weapons at all. But if you want to get a gun, there are many options. You know, for hunting, for self protection at home. But it doesn't have to be give all take all. You know. Yeah. Edgar, when when I was following the the reporting on all of this, you you were the first person I read who wrote about a pastor. A clergy member who was who was in there trying to you know help find out who who was in the ER who passed away. Uh, tell me a little bit about your thinking on reporting on that uh, on a clergy member and 
and help us see again a lot of the people listening to this podcast are we are members of the clergy we a lot of us uh, think uh, hope we never have to encounter that but we all, all we're also at a loss or what I, I hope I never have to face it. And if I do, I have no clue. I have no clue how, how it would bring comfort to right. a situation like that. But but you were there. You saw a, a pastor who had to do this. Tell, tell us a little bit about that and yeah, how, how you came to report on, on him. Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, when this, this big news, horrible events happen, we run what we call a live blog. It's basically a really up-to-date uh, stream of, of news that's coming to the website. And and that means that we write like shorter vignettes of what's happening on the ground. So when I drove to Ubaldi, um, I went straight to the hospital because I know that's where some of the people would be. And I get my respectable distance, you know, because you, in this kind of tragedy, you never know if someone wants to, to share their story. And some people don't want to share their story, but you, you don't know until you approach someone. And, and delicately ask them, you know. So the first man that I ran into in the parking lot was the pastor. Um, he was walking out, he looked pretty distraught with his wife. Um, and then he stopped in the parking lot and I approached him and I said, I'm very sorry, um, you know, to approach you during the circumstances, but can I ask you what brings you here? Um, and he told me the story about how, as soon as he learned that somebody in his congregation has lost uh, their grandchild, grand, grandson, uh, to this tragedy, he just rushed over there, you know, and he met them at the hospital, he pray, prayed with them, um, and this is the pastor um, uh, who was um, friends with the uh, Lopez family, Xavier Lopez was the little boy who who uh, who died, and, and the pastor was familiar with the grandparents, and the grandparents, name the father the grandfather was Leonard Sandoval so we have the same last name um so that was our commonality to get you know to have a little bit of report um but yeah the pastor just kind of talked to me about what it was like to be in the hospital and what he told them um uh, you know and how it, the impossibility of trying to com comfort someone when they cannot be you know really find any comfort anywhere but you know he prayed with them um and if if People who are who believe in you know in, in religion they find comfort in knowing that you know at least they're not alone and they have people around in the community who support them, you know. So I so I spoke to him and then I went to my car and I had to write something really quickly because, as I mentioned before, you have to update this ongoing blog, and you when you write this this stories you know you're always nervous about how would they perceive it you know like would they you know would they think that they share something they shouldn't have shared perhaps or or, you know, I don't know, they were just um, in an emotional state, but he actually texted me like later and said, thank you so much for, for sharing my story and for, you know, for, for, for reminding people that there are pastors out there who were there to help people when they need it. So yeah, he was really nice and we stayed in touch every now and then just not, not so much recently, but surely in the aftermath, we were just texting each other yeah. and asking, I was asking for how's the family doing, you know? How they're holding up and you know those kind of things yeah so how how are things there how 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 are the family how's how's andrea doing 
Uh, and there, you know, I, I wrote a follow-up story where I, um, about kids going back to school. And Andrea had a really difficult time deciding whether or not to go back to school, you know, because it's, it's difficult for them to, to even step back into a campus after what they went through. But at the end, she decided to go back, you know. She was, she was undecided until the very last few days. And finally, she told her mom, you know, mom, I'm going to go. And the mom said, well, you know, go to school. If you ever feel at any point like you can stay there, just call me and I'll go pick you up, you know? So she's been able to, to stay in school. Um, she's doing well considering, I mean, no one knows the trauma that these children are gonna, it's gonna manifest in the future, you know? This is, people have to go back to work. I know this is a, a working community. Um, you know, they, a lot of kids are getting therapy, but like I said, nobody knows. Um, I've been talking to one of the survivor families um, this is a child who was wounded in the classroom and, and was there for 77 minutes while the police waited to, to breach and confront the gunman. But he also looks like a normal boy. Like if you saw him on the street, you would never know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, his parents are worried because they've been told that he can be what it were normal for a long time. And then one day as a grown up, something can just trigger him and, and send them into an emotional Tailspin. You just don't know, you know. So, so everyone is 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 just trying to survive day by day. You know, the next day and the next day. Um, the parents are just focused on activism. That's how they, you know, they're they're able to <clears throat> to keep going forward. Um, but the town is also divided. You know, like like I mentioned earlier, it's a conservative town, um, even though it's majority Latino. People have this idea that if you're Latino, you automatically are on the Democratic side. But the reality is in a lot of Texas communities, uh, people are, are, are Christians, which <laughs> uh, a lot of them, um, a lot of Christians for some reason tend to be, to see themselves in, in, in the Republican Party and, and the, the right side of, of issues. Um, but, you know, in the last election, um, the parents were really hoping that the town would come together and vote for people that were supporting. They were supporting Beto O'Rourke, which I never thought uh, he was going to have a, a great success in Texas. But, but I thought maybe the down ballot people that people in Uvalde knew, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but this, there's a really vocal uh, state senator, Roland Gutierrez, who's been really like um, the voice of the parents, especially at the state capitol. Um, and he lost Allen Allen Town. Sorry, he lost uh, Uvalde. He he ended up winning the district because it includes San Antonio, so he mm -hmm. had a lot of voters in that region. But he lost um, the town of Uvalde by a large percentage margin, wow. and that just goes to show that the community, their neighbors, um, voted against um, the families, as as we call them, and that was devastating for them. You know, it was heartbreaking. Um, they, they voted for Governor Abbott and. I believe it was 60, 60 percent in favor of Abbott and and you know and the rest for for O'Rourke and also Mr. Gutierrez, the senator, the senator, he also lost to nearly sixty percent. So his rival got sixty percent of the vote, and he got the rest. So it's a pretty small margin if you think about it. Yeah. Wow. But but that these are moments of uh, of the the plurality of our communities, right? That's right. Yeah, and that goes to show. Um, yeah, and how you how divided the town has become. You know, when the superintendent um, resigned because 
he said he he retired, but in reality, there was a lot of um, pressure from from the local families. They weren't happy with the police response or how the school district, um, you know, handled information going forward. Um, so when he retired, a lot of the community members, a lot of the older white people who also lived there, but also like regular residents show up to support the superintendent, not the families. Um, and that was a real, a, a real visceral moment for the Uvalde family. So they supported, they showed up in big numbers and clap as he walked away from the school building. And the parents are just like, you know, distraught, you know, it's like, yeah, because, you know, at the beginning, um, the, 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 the signs of Uvalde strong, Uvalde United were everywhere, you know, but now we have seen that that's not the case, that there are divisions. Yeah. Edgar, how, how do you take care of yourself in after, after reporting on such, yeah, going continuing to have to report yeah. on such tragic? I mean, it's really rewarding. Even though I broke down a little bit, I told my editor I broke down a little bit, not because I can't or don't want to lose anymore. I just had, a, you know, an emotional moment. But I find it really rewarding to tell these stories. Um, you know, every time to tell these stories and, and it reaches people, um, I do feel emotionally rewarded. I have another story coming up about some of the survivors um, and even the ones that I've told, like I I spent um, a lot of time with one of the family members um, leading up to the day of the dead, Dia de los Muertos, which is like mm -hmm. a, a folkloric holiday. Speaking of how communities still embrace their their culture, you know, even though they're they're part of the American mainstream, um, they do celebrate Dia de los Muertos uh, in Uvalde. Uh, but before this year, it was more of an intimate. A lot of people went to a cemetery on their own and and brought like food and and memories and and the favorite snacks that their their departed loved ones love to eat. But this year, it was really a unified. You know, there are moments of unity every now and then. Uh, thank God for the families. And that was one moment where the community kind of the cemetery turned into like a festival. Really, it was it was the the first time that I saw a sense of, of, I don't want to say happiness, but a sense of, it was it was a jovial environment hmm. because it was about remembering lives, not, you know, that was the only time they were they were not like chanting for justice or kind yeah. of, it was just remembering who the kids and the two teachers were. Um, you know, the typical altar uh, had like a, a smiling photo of the child and the favorite, you know, the favorite foods um, that they like to eat. Uh, and like yeah and and like little trinkets that they kept you know souvenirs um so yeah i mean that was the the, the one time that we um that we got to experience um something that it was unifying but also mm -hmm. focus on on the memories and not so much on, on the tragedy yeah it was focused on an article on, on, a, on a woman named ana rodriguez Mm -hmm. Her daughter Maite Rodriguez uh, died, unfortunately, in this in this tragedy. But um, she chose not to to bury her in a cemetery. She was cremated. So and so we follow Anna from her house to the cemetery. She's carrying this urn, you know, and then brought her brought her daughter over to the cemetery to share with the other parents who did bury the children in there. Um, and she she adorned the altar with the urn, her photos. And the tennis shoes that she wore that day, um, they, they were given back to her. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, um, and the parents, you know, they give each other strength, you know, because only they know what they're going through. Nobody will ever know them and parents of other mass school shootings. Yeah. Um, 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, but you know, I take care of myself just by doing some things for you. You know, you have to, like I went, I'm in New York right now. So I went to see Phantom of the Opera the other day. You yeah, know, before you, it closes. Yeah, before it closes. So you have to find little things to do for yourself to, mm -hmm. you know, to, do, to, to get a break from some people don't have a choice. You know, people who live in, like, especially the families of the children, that's just, you know, they don't have a, they can't escape their reality, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah. the one thing that we have that is on our benefit is that we can sometimes get a break from from this world. So when we go back to report on it, you know, we're we're mm -hmm. we can do so. Yeah. Well Edgar, you're you're doing God's work because you're you're bearing witness to to some of the most painful things in this in our society and you're helping us. The, Thank you. Not just us but for future generations. But I do I do also try to do other stories that are not that mm -hmm. They show different diversity um, in the community. Like for example, uh, last year, it's gonna be a year ago almost already, I went to the border. I grew up in McAllen, in the mission area. And I always very was always very interested in, and you've probably seen this, in ropa usada shops, mm -hmm. use yeah. warehouse clothes. And in the valley, they're not just stores. I mean, they're warehouses, the size mm -hmm. of like tennis, tennis uh, fields. And there's like mountains and mountains of clothes so people just kind of climb them and they just dig for yep, yep. for deals, you know? Um, so I wanted to write a story about that. And I pitched to my editor and I said, yeah, go. And I spent a week just going to different shops and talking to people. I mean, surprisingly, it was kind of difficult to report it because a lot of people, there's a stigma about buying, um, you know, clothes from a pile of, of, uh, of used, you know, uh, items. So um, it was difficult to get access. A lot of the owners were not very trusting, but I did find enough people to let me. Um, there was a woman who, she was very happy about it. She was like, I've been doing this since the seventies. She's like, I have no shame. And, and I don't, there's no shame in, in look, looking for a good deal. She, she was, she was as a cleaner as a, in a building. So she's like, I make very little money. So this is how I buy my, my grandkids clothes and my kids clothes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a kind of a tender moment. Her and other two grandmas were next mm -hmm. to each other looking for deals. She was looking for a quinceanera dress for her niece who was about to turn 15. And she grabbed like this huge dress with like a flower uh, image in the skirt. Think mm -hmm. uh, how the Virgen Maria mantle just you know, appeared. That's, that's how the flower looked. Wow. So she found a bargain. Um, and then the grandma, it was kind of funny. She she found a bikini for the summer season, so they were just kind of you know giggling about their finds. Oh, wow, that's great! And uh, yeah, and they only pay like eight dollars for like the a, like a, a laundry bag full of clothes. So so on that same note, since since there were there are a lot of scholars and professors who are, who are supervising grad students doing research, and what what are what are some of these these stories that some of these these ethnographies right that need to be done and uh, and the way that uh, the religions being lived right that that that's uh, that's new because this some of these things are are just you know everything we're facing now is mm -hmm. new and has yet to be recorded and seriously thought through right what what are some some of these spaces you you think uh, scholars need to be to be paying attention to that are that are developing and and we just don't know enough yet 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, the tool is a reporter. Sometimes, you know, in my old job, not so much now because I cover such a vast area. I cover mm -hmm. San Antonio and below and even northern. Um, but when I used to cover towns and cities, I would just get out of my car and drive around just to see what's, what catches my eye, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, I, I always wonder why there was never an article about Robustada stores, mm -hmm. even though they're so visible. And then I realized why it's so difficult to to get into these places unless you're shopping there. Um, and I didn't want to do a story where I'm going incognito. You know, I don't like, uh, unless unless we try to cover some sort of corruption or wrongdoing, you don't want to shame people. Um, I want people to know and be participants yeah, of, of the story. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, it, it was difficult and I understand why. Um, there was one writer who did write about Rokusala many years ago for Texas Monthly, her name is Cecilia Valle. That was more of a first person uh, essay, mm -hmm. uh, you know, involving Robustada. But uh, yeah, I never seen an article about it. I seen very few things. So I was like, how come I can't see anything about this this phenomenon, even though it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's something you see. Once you cross the bridge from Reynosa to Hidalgo, I mean, you can't miss them. There's like these towering warehouses mm -hmm. with the giant letters, like Times Square size letters. Mm -hmm. Robustada, use clothing. So I would say just drive around, you know. I uh, When I was in Florida, I was driving around uh, town looking for story ideas, and I came across a really peculiar, like little shopping center. Um, one, it was one of those dying shopping centers that, you know, ever since uh, online stores took off, a lot of the stores have been struggling to mm -hmm. customers, and and this little like um, little area, they were really struggling to get people's attention, so they became creative. Like they had a um, a dentist had a sign that said dentistry for cowards. And it was like, basically, if if you've never been to a dentist before or have been avoiding it for fear, mm -hmm. then he had, you know, <clears throat> ways to make you feel at ease, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so things like that, just um, read, you know, I, I like to also, when you read local, <clears throat> local papers, um, just look for that one line that catches your eye, mm -hmm. that tells a bigger story. Yeah, about the community because uh, i always i joke that journalism is anthropology in a hurry you know like you're doing mm -hmm. the work that anthropologists do yeah. but you do it a lot quicker sometimes mm -hmm. and definitely well edgar thank you so much for your time on behalf of open plaza and our community thank you for for your work thank you for oh, thank you yeah, for your thank time you for having me This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.